Good morning, church. My name is Jan Evans, and I'm here to share some scripture with you this morning. And those of you who are still trying to open your communion cups, feel free to continue to do that. <laughs> I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you, Aphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, 
lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This ends the scripture reading. Well, thank you, Jan. And good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We're disciples of Jesus to build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. And you just heard Philippians chapter 2, which is where we are going to be uh, going through today and studying and finding joy, uh, being unchained. But first, as I come on stage, it's not just me. Remember, I brought four friends with me. You might not see them, but some of you from last week remember them. <laughs> so you could help me. And over here, if you recall, who was over here, the first guy? There's a king, right? There's a king, and he's got a nice crown on his head, got the big robe, people trying to take his crown, but they can't get it because he is the true noble right there. And who's standing next to that king, do you remember? Yeah, the redneck, and redneck is selling you something right there. What is he selling you? Right pure redneck juice. This is right pure redneck juice. So, got the true noble and the right pure redneck juice being there. And next to them, who do we got? Yeah, we got a lovely admiral, right? He's putting on lipstick. That admiral, got all, like the, his whole navy regalia on and putting on lipstick because he is lovely. So we got our lovely admiral. We got the, the true noble, the ripe pure redneck juice, the lovely admiral. Then we have who's over there on the golden piano? Jesse, yeah. And he's just jamming. Right? And Bill and Ted show up in their big phone booth and they come down and listen to him and they're like, Excellent! That, that praise is worthy. Right? That's that's who we got there. So we have all of them, which then helps us with our memory verse, of course, for the series, which is Philippians 4 8. So you can say it along with me. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever thing is praiseworthy or excellent, think about such things. Oh, I switched it. Excellent or praiseworthy. That's right. Excellent comes first. All right. For me, let's do it again. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, Philippians 4, 8. All right, well, hopefully that's sticking in your mind. If not, it's on your connection card right there on the end. You could take that. That is the filter that helps us achieve this joy that we've been talking about this series, right? It's the punch line at the very end. It's the key to all the stuff that Paul is talking about in this. And uh, really, in any circumstance, this is how we're to set our mind, and so it can be transformed. Now, if you have your Bibles, you join me in Philippians 2. You heard it, uh, but you might want to take some notes in there. Chapter 1, last week, we talked about joy in the midst of hardship, right? And it's important to recognize that the Bible, all of these chapters were written in context. Paul is making a point here. And most of us in life face hardship. In fact, I would dare to say pretty much all of us. And if you don't, tell me, I'll make sure that you get some. <laughs> right? But we all do, and we can have joy in the midst of that, right? Because God is, is there. He's given us his people. 
right? He's given us purpose in the midst of our sufferings, and he also promises that he has. So we cling to those in the midst of hardship. And right after that, Paul then goes on to this next chapter. He really develops then one of the secrets in in that as we cling to those things, how important it is that we have humility, right? As if we lose humility, if we become prideful in our faith, and in God's promises, if we become prideful in the purposes that he has for us, become prideful amongst his body, we miss out on joy. And so he begins to give us this idea of, of the importance of having this humility, right? And so let's go to a different guy, James, who says this in scripture. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill, you covet, you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, he's talking to Christians, right? There's a lot of times that we lose joy. We have the people of God. We have the promises of God. We have the purposes of God. But oftentimes, we miss those things because we still have this thing inside called pride, right? And pride is self-worship. It's self-centeredness, right? That's why love is the opposite of that, because love seeks another's good regardless of my own. But, but pride just focuses on me, and when I do that, I have my own little kingdom, and I go to war against your little kingdom because sometimes we don't want the same things. And then we quarrel and fight, and we're miserable in our churches, in our families, in our community. Have you noticed that it doesn't work very well of having joy? It's one of the reasons that I'm not on social media anymore, because like, there's quarrels and fights among lots of people there all the time. And I found myself didn't getting wrapped up into that. And I had these desires, I want people to not be dumb, and they just keep being dumb. <laughs> right? But what happens is, is that it, it robs our joy, and it makes us murderous in our heart, become hateful and horrible. Well, the step is not just to remove things from our life, but to allow God to change us from the inside. Right? And he begins to do that with his humility. And that's where Paul begins to, to grow in there. And he says, if you want to have humility, you're, you're gonna, if you're going to have a joy, you're going to have to have humility, right? And so humility fosters joy. That's why it's so important that joy in life, true happiness, remember what joy is? It's deep happiness or contentment, right? Deep happiness or contentment. If you want to have that in life, regardless of your circumstances, it's got to grow in a fertile soil of, of a humble life, why Paul begins this whole chapter, he develops this idea of where we find humility and how we can, we see that it works, that humility actually leads to joy, because it's antithetical to what the world tells you, right? The, the world tells us one way is that if you have, you know, a lot of, you're getting things your own way, and people, you have power and influence and all those things be, that allows you to get things your own way, and people kind of listen to you and give you what you want, then you and it's all about you, then you're going to be happy, right? That's what they say. And then you're going to have deep happiness and contentment because you're always getting your way. But we know that's not true. Some of the most miserable people in the world have been world leaders and celebrities, right? Those who have tons of influence, who tend to seem to always get their way, but there's something missing. And so we look at that, we find that we have humility fosters joy, which is a strange concept, but Paul begins to talk about this in in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement of being united in Christ, right? This finding joy in God's people. If any comfort from his love, right? Any common sharing in the spirit that we're we're finding in his purposes there. Any tenderness and compassion. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, right? So that means I can't be selfish. It can't be about my ideas and desires. We have to come together, right? How do we do that? Having the same love, being one in the spirit of one mind. 
That's hard because our problem is that we all want what we want. And the only way to become like-minded is if we all agree not to get it our way. We have to agree to have a different way that we come together and we agree this is the way we're going. This is the way. So what is this way? Well, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. That's the first thing it says, that the church doesn't follow any one person, right? That this church doesn't follow my desires. You understand that? Or yours or anybody else's, right? There are going to be things in the church or our, our programming or our, our focus or how we do things. If it's all driven, makes one person happy, the church is, is missing the point. Right, Because we can't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's not about everybody just agreeing to the strongest person in the room. Instead, it says, rather, in humility, value others above yourself. This is where it begins. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Right? That, that's an idea. It's just having an accurate understanding of who I am. That, that none of us are kings of this church or queens of this church. There is a king of this church. His name is Jesus. And he, he, he reigns on that throne, right? So not looking out to your own interests. If we come to this church with an agenda that I want to, to practice my faith and have things my way, and we're going to do things this way, and until we get it that way, I'm not going to be happy. We're never going to be happy because there's going to be somebody in this church who's going to disagree with you. We don't look out to our own interests, but get this. But each of you to the interests of others. Do you know what that is? That is love. When we seek another's good regardless of our own, that is love. Right? And so the first thing that he points to is that this is how we're going to have joy in the church. If we're going to have joy, we're going we're to have this humility that allows joy to begin. Where we all agree that we're not going to disagree. Because we're all going to agree on the same thing. And you know what that is? It's this. Right? The, the Bible is, is God's inspired word for us. It was given to us for, for our instruction, for our teaching, for our training, for our growth, for our understanding. It becomes the foundation and the standard for everything we, we believe in. And so we agree as Christians that we're going to follow this. We agree that we're going to follow the dictates and the mandates and, and the methods of God. We're going to follow what he wants for us regardless. And here's a cool thing about Jesus and me. We don't always agree. That way I know I'm obeying him, right? When I surrender my wants and desires for what he wants, then I know that I'm actually following him and not asking Jesus to follow me on some crazy, you know, adventure of, of destruction, which I would bring him on. But instead, when we all surrender ourselves and say, God, we're going to follow your way, we all agree to agree on Christ. We're going to follow the word. Well, there's something different that happens there. Then in humility, we're able to then stop trying to get our own way, and we can actually start loving one another. Now, Paul then goes through and he gives us three examples of how this has been practiced in the church with real people throughout time. And the first one is through Christ Jesus himself. It's important for us to remember, if anybody had the right to be prideful in the church, it would be Jesus, because it truly is about him. This is his body, right? This is his bride. He purchased the church. He owns the church. He could be a, a dictator if he wanted to. But in verse 5, we're reminded that with one another, we're to have the same 
mindset is Christ Jesus, right? That we're supposed to act like he does. And how did Jesus treat the church? Well, next passage. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We all might have a good pedigree, right? You, you may have been brought up in the church. You might be a, a, a key servant in the church. Maybe you've been a, a, started, a, a member that helped found the church. You know, maybe, you know, you could be on staff or a pastor, right? All of those things. But none of us have the pedigree of Jesus, who is God. Like if Jesus showed up at any one of our board meetings and said, this is the way things should go, he'd have the right to say that. And we would be, yes, sir, right? Jesus had all authority, but when he showed up on earth, did he force the world to bend the knee to him? No. He didn't show up like a Muhammad with a sword. He showed up meek and mild and gentle. In the same way, we in the church have to have this mentality. If the master that we serve demonstrates humility, how much more should we? In Philippians 2.7, the next verse, he says, Rather, instead of doing that, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. It's too big for our brains to comprehend. One of the reasons I know our faith wasn't invented by humanity, that the immortal God became mortal. Can you figure that out? He was no less God, and yet he was 100% fully human. I can't, it's not a contradiction, it's just too much for me to understand, but it was a reality, a miraculous reality, that God became human. I mean, the omnipresent God, who's all over, everywhere, all the time, confined himself into time and space. Can you figure that out? No, but it was a reality. It's not a contradiction. It's just, it's just we can't see, we can't justify it in our minds how a God can do that. How can it be? And yet it was. And so the omnipresent God and the, and the omnipotent God, who can do all things, and Jesus always had the power to do all things. He's the very creator. By his, his, his work, and his, he created all things. In fact, we find that everything right now is being held together because of him. He didn't stop having that power because as far as I read the Gospels, everything didn't fall apart. And even though he was omnipotent, had all the power, he still limited his power. He didn't always get his way. In fact, a lot of things happened in Jesus' life that I'm sure were not exactly how he would have wanted them to go. But he, he could have forced things to happen his way, but he didn't. Instead, he chose humility, and he took on the nature of a servant. Where Jesus says, you know, I, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the mindset that we have to come into the church as. When we enter the church, it's not about me getting what I want. It's about us to say, God is going to get what he wants. We're going to agree with what he has. But for me personally, how can I serve you? How can I care for you? How can I love you? That's the nature of Christ, the mind of Christ. And Paul goes on in this in 2.8. He says, and being found the appearance of man which was already humbling enough. I mean, even if Jesus became a king or an emperor 
or a pope or something like that, that would still be pretty humbling. I mean, if you go from God to that, that's a huge step down. But he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Remember that even while he was in the garden before he was taken to the cross, he was there and he was talking to his father and he's like, you know, if there's any other way to go around this, I would prefer that. But he says one of the most profound prayers and one that I have repeated many times in my life, not my will, but yours be done. Didn't he set an example for us in this? Jesus humbled himself. He thought of himself less than he thought of us and his father's work and will. He set an example for us in this. That's what Paul is saying here in Philippians. That we need to really think about this example. Because who are we as Christians walking around like little proud peacocks deciding that we're going to get things our own way and we're going to demand it. And if it's not like this, then I'm not going to be with these people. I'm not going to love those people. When Jesus himself died for us, he chose his father's will above his own. And if we're his disciples and we're going to follow after him, then we need to have that same heart. Now, why did Jesus die on a cross? It's important for us to just remember this. He did that so we could be saved. Not for his benefit, but for ours. See, Romans 6.23 says, The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the reality for us. That if any of us have ever sinned, which is all of us, right? Every one of us has done something. We've, we've committed treason against God, and you might not think your sin's been so bad, but God does. And guess what? He's the judge, and so he's the one that matters on this. The wage is death, right? In other ways, it's the penalty. It's like if you commit a crime in our country, you have to pay the penalty for that. And there's no way you can outgood your crime. It's not like, you know, I could go out to, you know, downtown and, and see people that are standing around, you know, waiting for an elk to leave, you know, and it's in the way and I get mad at them and I take my machete out and I just hack one of them to death, you know, to, to get the rest of them to, to, you know, scatter. Even though it's a noble purpose and a good cause, <laughs> right? I still committed murder, right? And, and I could go to the judge and say, well, I pay my taxes and I'm a good husband and father, and I'm a good neighbor. And look at all of these other thousands of laws that I have perfectly obeyed. The judge would still say, yeah, all of those things are true, but you're still a murderer. And I couldn't go to him and say, yeah, but okay, I get that. But what if, what if, from this point on, I promise I will never murder another person? I just won't. And the judge would say, that's great. That's still just keeping the law. You're still a murderer. This is why religion can't save us from damnation. It's what we deserve. If you have sinned, you deserve eternal death. Which is why we needed a savior. Because God didn't make us so we would die. He didn't create us for death. And so he created us in such a way that we would need his help. Isn't it amazing we have a God that didn't just look down on us and say, well, I'm going to wipe away humanity and create something different? Because there was a purpose in our falling. There was a purpose in our failing. There's something in it that we needed so that we wouldn't become prideful. That we would turn to our Lord and say, help, I need you. And our, we have a loving God who was willing to pay our penalty for us. Well, how does he do that? Romans 3 
goes and talks about that. He says, for God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That means he died, that's a sacrifice, and that sacrifice atoned for our sins. Now, the word there, Greek word there, is propitiation, and we turn to, it's actually that God actually took all of his wrath, that he was mad at us because we did naughty, horrible things, and still do, and all of that anger landed on Jesus. And when all of the anger lands on Jesus, guess what? There's no anger left for you. So his wrath was turned away so he can have kindness towards us. That's fascinating. But not only that, how, he, he presented Christ's sacrifice and through the shedding of the blood to be received by faith. It's not as though God said, hey, I'm going to send Jesus down. He's going to pay this high price. And then in order to earn that, you're going to need to do all of these things, right? And he could have a huge list of things that we have to do, right? You know, sacrifice 20 goats, you know, walk around with a, a big old tunic for a year and a half, whipping ourselves, you know, and bury. Wait, he could do anything he wanted. He said, if you want to be saved, he could. But he didn't do any of that. He didn't say, you have to earn it at all. He says, I paid the price. All you have to do is trust me to be received by faith. Now, obviously, in Scripture, faith, and we talk about building that doctrine, how is faith expressed? Because faith is a nebulous, invisible thing. How do you know you have faith? Well, it needs to be expressed. Like, you know, if you really believe your pants are on fire, guess what? You're going to put your pants out or take them off or something. It's good. Really, truly believing something causes action. Your faith will be expressed somehow. And the Bible gives us some guidance. It says, I want your faith to be expressed if we believe in Jesus. First thing you're going to do is you're going to believe in him. You're going to trust him even when you have doubts, right? That's faith expressed. So when I have doubts, I say, well, God, right today, I'm having a hard time trusting that you love me, but I'm going to trust that you love me. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe that you saved me, you paid the price, and it was enough. But that's not the only thing. We also get to confess him, right? That's like identifying with Jesus, which is really amazing that God would want to be identified with me and you, right? But he's like, we get to say he's our Lord, he's our Savior from this point on, that we get to, to follow him, and, and he could say, you know what, I'm with Jesus. That's, a, that's an expression of faith. And not only that, but we also have, we have repentance, and repentance is this, we stop living our lives for me, and I start living my life for Jesus. It's not my rules anymore, it's God's rules, it's so when we all agree, I'm following this way. Sometimes I'm naughty, but I have to agree that I'm disagreeing with God and I'm not doing what he wants because his way be, is the way that we ought to live, right? Repentance, expression of faith. Now, we could wear Jesus bumper stickers and have Jesus tattoos, right? And we can have really solid belief in that, you know, that the Bible is the inspired word, but not actually trusting Jesus as our savior and, and, and uh, and we could do, uh, we could obey all of these rules perfectly from this point on. But if we don't have faith in Jesus actually saving us, all of those actions, those expressions of faith are what? Worthless, right? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Faith needs to be expressed. But let's not confuse the expression with faith itself. Are you trusting Jesus? Do you believe he paid the penalty that God loves you? If you do, then all of those expressions are important. But God gave us another one that's important too, and that's baptism. Is you get dunked in water as a symbol of dying to your old life and being born again, that you realize you're saying by faith, I am a child of God, I'm born again. And just like dirt gets washed through my body when I'm baptized, God washed away my sins. It's amazing. And now I'm a part of something new forever. 
But if you don't have faith in Jesus, a baptism does nothing for you. It's just a strange bath that people clap for you at. But if you have faith, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's an expression of, of God's truth that you are born again. It's a cleansing of the soul. Another expression of faith that God gives us is discipleship. It's being here is what you're doing now. It's continuing to walk in faithfulness from this point on with other Christians. That's an expression of faith. If you just show up to a church like a club and you're here because we're great people and you love the love and, and the way that we live life makes sense and actually works, but you don't have faith in Jesus, that's not going to do you any good. It has to start with this. It was... Christ's sacrifice of atonement was through the shedding of his blood to be received by this faith. And we express that in our, in our belief, in our confession, our repentance, our baptism, our discipleship, but recognize this. None of those things earn our salvation. Jesus bought it for us. And he did that because we needed it. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. He's, he's not cheating the rules. He's following all of the laws, Right? Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You know what he's talking about? The people before Jesus came and died. Do you know that Moses trusted God and he's going to be saved, but Jesus didn't die for his sins yet? How so? How was he saved by grace through faith? Well, Jesus said, all right, I'm putting it on credit. You're going to trust me. I'm going to save you. But he had to wait till Jesus actually paid the penalty for Moses to be saved. But God paid for them. And not just for Moses retroactively, but for us as well. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just means that he does what is right. And the justifier, right? The one who justifies, who have faith in Jesus. So the first thing we come to as Christians to give us the place for humility is this. We are all sinners saved. We are all enemies of God who have now been adopted into God's heavenly household. We don't stand with God at a place that we can talk down to him or demand things from him. We are all people that have been purchased by the blood of Christ, a God who loves us, which gives us good reason to follow him. And that's why Paul then goes back to Philippians 2. He says, therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The fear that we have as Christians is we have this idea that if I'm meek and I'm mild, right? If I'm, hum if I'm humble, then I will be taken advantage of and there will be no glory in that. But the reality is this. God glorifies the humble. He lifts them up. That's what he does. In this world, if you want to achieve and earn your own glory, you're going to have to go out and work really hard at it and do all these things and maybe step on a few people as you get climb your way to the top. But here's what's going to happen. You may achieve some glory for a short period of time, but then everyone's going to forget you. That's what's going to happen. Who's the seventh president of the United States? Only nerds know that, <laughs> right? That's our own president, right? Who, who won the Super Bowl five years ago? A few sports geeks know that, but not very many other people. But for those that were in it, I mean, they worked really hard for that, right? Everything we do in this life, that we build these, these things, we're going to be forgotten here, but not there. So I always tell my family, I don't need a memorial here. I don't need to be memorialized because I will still exist in heaven. Plus, this world's all going to be torched anyway. 
right? We have a God who has a better way to glory. And if you humble yourself, if you think of others and love one another, God will lift you up. He did it with Christ who showed the most humility and died for all of us, which is a little more than any of us have done. And he receives the greatest glory. Also for us who look back at this as an example of humility, recognize this, that if you want to have glory, you want to have something that's going to last, let God lift you up. And we do that by taking on the nature of a servant. We care for one another. So the Christian lives a different life. In Hebrews 12, it talks about this. For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of, uh, of the throne of God. Right? It was the doorway from humility that led to greatness. It is the same for his followers. This is how we become great. And so we serve. You know, the greatest dads I know are the ones who love their, their kids, right? Who, who sacrifice, lay down their life. When they're tired and they come home after work and they want to do nothing more than just veg out, and instead they spend time with their kids and they serve them. Those are the ones that we think of, wow, that's a great dad. Or, or like the wives that are really, really fantastic are the ones that, you know, even when they're exhausted, man, they've done everything, they're spent, they're still nice to their husbands, right? <laughs> they, they still do and they serve and they're kind. And those are the ones, that the, those are the kind of wives that husbands treasure, Right? We understand this in life, that, that service and humility leads to greatness. And so we look at Christ as an example. Right? Even Jesus said this while he was on this earth. He called his disciples together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? Isn't that true? I mean, look at the way the world is right now. People in power, are they kind of abusing it maybe? Right? And you know that the rules of Israel over, but and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. We operate different here. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man came to be served, not not to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pathway. If we agree with the mind of Christ all together on this that we're going to live our lives serving one another for what God wants, not my priorities, but his, we are on a pathway to something much better. We have the ability then to grow joy, true, deep happiness and contentment in your life today. But you know what? Jesus, I know when we look at Jesus as an example, it's a little bit, uh, sometimes it's deflating because he's perfect and I'm not. So Paul goes on, he says, yes, this is what we see in Jesus, but it's also what we find in the church. That's what he moves to next, if you see, right? The church is Christ's body. We are, we, we're supposed to, to emulate. We're supposed to, to show and to live in such a way that reflects Christ's, the mind of Christ, right? That my body reflects the, the will of my mind. And so the body of Christ should do the same thing. In verse 12, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you could circle that word obeyed. Because obedience is an act of humility. Obedience is when you're not getting your way. That's the point, right? But who are you obeying? If we're obeying a person, not so great. But if you're obeying Christ and his will, his desire, that's huge. We lay down our wants and desires. We say we've obeyed. And not only when the apostles there or the pastors that are telling you, like, we, we, we follow Christ because we have the mind of Christ. We want to do what he wants because his will is better. 
What that leads to is, he says to continue out your salvation with fear and trembling. What that is, is, is not like, oh my goodness, I'm so scared I'm saved, because that makes no sense. It's a reality that, that we follow our Savior, that God is the one whom we're serving. This is not a human enterprise. The church is entirely different than anything else. There's a holiness to it, a difference to it. It's not like anything else. And so our lives as members of this church ought to be holy and different than the rest of the world. This is why we obey. This is why we submit our wills and our desires to Christ's. And then he goes deeper. It's not just our obedience, but then he goes down into our very motivations. So as the church, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and a warped and crooked generation. That's a great description of our culture, right? But it doesn't matter how bad it is outside. What matters is the light of Christ in you, because then you will shine like them, among them like stars in the sky. Now you get this. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. If, if God has got to beg you, and the church has got to beg you, and your pastors have got to beg you, please obey God. Please just do what he says right? Worship him with your time. Come to church, please. Would you please serve him somehow, some way? Show anybody that you love them, right? If the church like, please just give back to God so ministry can happen. If we have to do that, we're kind of diminishing our, 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 our testimony, aren't we? Without grumbling and complaining, if the church is here bickering all the time because somebody doesn't like croissants at the fellowship meal right, and decides to have a church split over it, that doesn't shine like stars. But when we, as God's children, choose not to only get our way, but just love each other and have a lot of tolerance and forgiveness and grace, that speaks to the world because that's a little different. You know, a couple of, of weeks ago, um, I went out to, to dinner I was with my mom, and uh, my, my wife was with us, and it's in South Dakota, and we went to this little restaurant, and, and there was a family there who had these, these kids, and they were sitting around the table, a little farmer family, and the children were so well-behaved. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, right? Had their thing. Little kids, like four or five years old, and all of that. I was so impressed. Like, they were not little hellions, <laughs> right? Did destroy our meal? Right? In fact, improved it. That made not just the family look good, but the parents. I was like, wow. Do you know as children that we're supposed to be like that as God's kids? How we act affects how the world sees Christ. And when we do, we shine like stars in the sky. It's going to be undeniable to the world that there is something beautiful amongst us. Which is why Paul finishes up. He talks about humility exemplified in Christ's servants. And he has two of them. He's like, this is not just amongst you in general, but let me just tell you, there's two people. Let me just show you humility amongst two of my servants. You can see what it looks like. And the first one was Timothy, right? Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him. I'll show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy was, was Paul's protege. He was a guy that followed Paul around. He started as a young man, uh, went through. He was with, it, with Paul when, in prison and all kinds of other crazy things, right? And, and Paul says, here's a guy that shows humility. And how do you do it? He, he doesn't look out for his own interests, right? But he, he cares for you, right? Which is, he says, everyone else is different. They look out for their own interests. Timothy shows humility, which is why he's valuable, which is why Paul, in the holy word of God, is able to brag on him. Wouldn't it be cool if the holy word of God bragged on you? Timothy laid his life down 
showed humility, was happy to play second chair, right, to the, the Apostle Paul. And Paul's able to, to say, you know what, here's a guy that you should look at and emulate. He's good. And he goes on to say, but I think it's necessary. Also, there's another guy, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a dude that was uh, sent from Philippi. They sent him to Paul to care for him. Then he gets sick, almost dies. And they send money with him and all this. He was the leader in the church and all these things. And he served faithfully even at his own peril. And even after he got sick and recovered, did he return home? He's like, well, this is, this is not good for me. No, he waited and he continued to serve Paul because he chose Paul's interest and the interest of the church because they sent him to say, you take care of Paul. And now Paul says, I want to send him back to you. I want to send him back now with, with recommendation and with glory. Right? Here's a great servant that you had. You know, our church has a lot of servants that demonstrate humility, a lot of them. And this year, we're going to be talking about a lot of those because they're amongst us, just like we have Timothy's and we have Epaphroditus's all over the place. And we can look to one another and be encouraged by the faithfulness of one another. And as we do, we don't take advantage of the humble. We follow their example because they're following the example of Christ. This is how a healthy church is built, but it's also how a healthy faith is built. And a healthy faith built in humility is one that can give us joy. And I want to have joy. I want to have deep happiness in life. I want to have contentment in life that I'm not always striving after the next thing in order to be okay. And in order to do that, we have to begin at that very strange place of saying, no, I'm going to stop thinking about my happiness. I'm going to start think, stop thinking about what I want. I'm going to start caring for Christ and start caring for you. So how do we do that? Well, on your connection card, I have some next steps. The first one you're going to see in there, which is something that really helps me when I'm starting to feel prideful, is that memorizing Philippians 4.8, right? Whatever is true and whatever is noble, right? Whatever is right and whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, just think about those things. You know, there are times that I'm not thinking about that. I know it's shocking as a pastor, but sometimes there are times where my mind isn't there and I become prideful. And when I start to feel the anger and the rage or the frustration or all of that, oftentimes what's the heart of that is selfishness. I'm wanting my way. And I go back to that passage and it reminds me that I can change my mind. And I'm going to think about what is good in that situation or what is right, what is noble, what is pure, right? It allows me to, to take God's word and begin to apply it to my life and it changes me so I become a difference maker in that particular circumstance. And the most crazy thing happens is even when I don't get my own way, all of a sudden I find a better way. And sometimes, even in the midst of hard things, God gives me joy, happiness, or contentment. So I encourage you, take some time, memorize that, but use that passage. That's why I have you do it. Read Philippians chapter 2 as well. You've heard it once. It was preached through. Now you go through this week. Take some time with the Word. Let it do its work on your heart. Next thing I'm going to challenge you to do is to worship God with your time, your talent, your treasure. Don't make Christ or the church or anybody beg you to do it. Center your life on Jesus. Right? If it needs to be make a commitment to coming to church regularly, then do the start there so you can get to know God's people. If it's serving, starting to serve somewhere in the church, even if it's like an hour a month, start serving and loving. If it's with your treasure, if you're, if you're hoarding everything you have and you're not giving back to God and his purposes, I invite you 
to trust God enough and to worship Him with your things. Wherever it is, say, wherever I'm at, I want to worship God. And maybe that's the step you need to take. Or maybe you've been a mem- coming to our church for a while and you're not a member yet, so you can't come to our members meeting today. I feel sad for you. It's going to be awesome. But <clears throat> it really is going to be awesome. But if you'd like to become a member, you want to know what does it mean to be a member at our church? What do we believe? So then I invite you to join us to our membership class. We're going to be doing that in a couple weeks. Uh, we'll be doing that middle service area, the Sunday school hour, uh, for a few weeks. And um, it'll be a good time. Uh, be able to get together and talk about our faith, get to know each other, uh, and I invite you to be part of that so you can be part of the body. And the last thing, I'm going to, this is a bonus, it's not on your thing, but if you haven't chosen to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that, because that's the only place joy is found. You can come to church and you're going to find love, but you need to find joy, you need to find life in Christ. And if you need to make that decision, right, you're saved by God's grace through faith, and you express that faith, belief, confession, repentance, and baptism, and discipleship, and we're here to help you support that. This is not a sales pitch, this is an opportunity, an invitation to God's family. And if you need to make that decision, don't leave today without coming and talking with me, because you have a pastor and you have a church family that's going to help you walk that, and we're going to help you and answer your questions. So if that's that one, you need to follow Jesus, your Lord and Savior, come and talk with me afterwards. And if you're joining us online and you need that, then you email, you write, and call. We're going to get a hold of you, and we're going to help you take those steps of faithfulness. All right, so hopefully you've all have something, a decision to make. I encourage you to do that. Write it on your connection card. Put your prayer thing on there. Then we're going to take a minute. And uh, we're going to let you write all those down. And then we're going to have the ushers come. They're going to collect uh, our commitments in the basket. And, uh, yeah, make those commitments to the Lord. Drop that in with your tithes and your offerings. All right, let me pray for you as we consider how is it the Lord wants us to walk this week. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your compassion. Father, we thank you that you have given us a great example in Christ. Uh, that you're a God that didn't walk in just power and pride, but you came in humility. Lord, that you sought our needs even above our own. And Father God, that you sought our what we, what we absolutely needed for salvation even above what you would want. And that you gave us glory even we didn't deserve it. Help us as a church to follow the example of Christ to receive that. Father, as we make commitments today, draw us closer to your heart. Let us agree and have a mind of Christ and your will in our lives, not just our own. Father God, so that you would be glorified and that your church will grow and that the glory of, of your goodness will be known throughout this land Father, that your salvation would reach new hearts and and new minds and would restore new homes for your goodness. Take our gifts and our offerings as well, Father, and that you would build your kingdom through them. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus who saves us.